All right, welcome back to part two of this interview. And I, I think I am gonna post this interview as two separate interviews just because um, it is longer and I, I don't want listeners to feel um, overburdened by the, the length. Uh, but in the earlier interview, I feel like we really addressed, adequately addressed what is SWI, why people might want to use SWI and how Dr. Bauer sees the differences between SWI and phonics instruction. Um, so what I really want to look at now moving forward is sort of the efficacy of the idea and potential limitations and Dr. Bauer's response to those potential limitations. Um, but before we begin, I, I want to go over one last sort of definition mm -hmm. type uh, question. Yeah. And this one's of great interest to me, and that's on this idea of is it explicit instruction or is it inquiry instruction? Yeah. Normally we see these as antagonistic ideas, but you're kind of presenting them in the same context. Absolutely. Well, for example, um, when we just said cats and dogs, I would describe that as explicit instruction driven by inquiry. I, I'm, I'm taking, I'm showing kids the structure of the singular cat and plural cats and singular dog and plural dog. And I'm, I'm totally driving the instruction, but then I have them notice, what do you say at the end? And they have to feel what they see at the end. And they say that in cats, what do you notice in dogs? You notice the zzz. Ah, so you're inquiring into those things. Now we can go take a page of text. Actually, that's something that I do, I had planned to show, but that where now you can now take kids who um, are, let me just see if I can find it, who are, um, in the in the process of uh, just learning to read, and you can take a page of text and have them. Hey, we just discovered that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not finding the one I'm looking for. We just discovered that this S can write both s and z. So let's go on a hunt. So here's a page that I've used in in classes before. It came from a book. But so here we have, this is just text from a little book on camels. It wasn't my book. It was a book that someone, they had me read to this class in their social studies unit in kindergarten, grade one or something. So here's this simple text. And the first job I gave them, I printed the page out and their job was to circle every time they see the letter S. So they go ahead and now you cannot, you don't have to be a reader to find that S and circle them. So you get to take part in the game. And you have to inquire into where what's an S and what's not an S. And so now I end up with all these words, but then we notice something interesting that I've set up here. And that is with the word shield. Mm. You circled the S in the word shield. I, I thought I had fixed this, but there it is. But actually that's not an S, that's an SH. So say shield, and what do you feel at the beginning? You feel the sh. That's not that the S is writing a sh, it's an SH. But the funny thing is the plural, what is that S writing? Is that writing S or Z? Oh, it's writing Z. So it goes over here, but not because of that S, just because of that, because that's not an S, it's an SH. It's an SH digraph. It's not an S, it's an S letter, but now we're getting to that idea. And so here's an inquiry game, words that you've circled, the rest of them, they say the words, we say them out loud, make sure they feel them, and now they sort them according to, and notice Sands has an S over here and an S over here. And so this is an, I think of this as inquiry into a grapheme phoneme correspondence. 
And but I've guided it, I've structured it, and I purposely picked a page that had an S that isn't an S grapheme. Because I gotta tell you, one of the biggest confusions for kids is not knowing the difference between what is a letter and what's a grapheme. Because what's the G doing in the word fight? Well, it's not really doing anything, it's just part of the IGH. So I don't want you to think about the G in night, I want you to notice the F I G H T. I want you to have IGH as a thing that is actually, when it's a grapheme, I think you'll always find it's writing the phoneme I. There's other times you'll see IGH is doing something else, but that's a story for another time. But the IGH trigraph, it's at least its main job is writing the phoneme I. And we have fight and night and write and all these words, well, one of the rights. And so that that's way I'm doing explicit instruction that is then gets sets up inquiry. Mm. That's really interesting. That's uh... But it's the only time I've ever seen anyone sort of do that, actually, to be honest, in that particular way. I've heard people like hypothesize about doing that in math, but I've never actually seen anyone truly execute it, to be honest. Well, the cool, but the crucial thing is that you'll find, I'll find myself teaching something that I think is true. I once, I, it was a workshop, and I, I thought that the only job of the Z grapheme was to write the phoneme Z. And then somebody said, what about the word Azure? <laughs> oh, you're right. The Z can write as well. So I was delighted to be proven wrong because now I don't keep going on thinking something that's not true. So I no longer say that the only job of the Z grapheme is to write Z because someone pointed out something else. And in the first year of me doing this stuff when I was teaching grade four and I was totally new to it, oh my God, I had no idea what I was doing, but I had a reference that I could guide and kids kept noticing things that I hadn't thought of. It was my job to be the head inquirer and deal with the th ideas and be responsible for looking stuff up when I didn't know the answer. But the kids' questions were driving what we did so much. And I didn't know the answer, but I now, for the first time in my life, had a reference I could go to and somebody I could email and say, wait a second, I don't understand. What's going on with this word? And that, and so here's a, on the inquiry point. It's really a central thing for me. And and it's it's this also comes into the cognitive load thing because the interest in the kids when you inquire and there's a re there, you expect there to be an answer is how you do more intensive cognitive processing, which is what you need to build, change, you rearrange the representations in your mind and your long-term memory. And so this interest that inquiry brings, but you can't inquire into randomness. If there's exceptions everywhere, there's you stop inquiring. Right. If the if the answer is well, that's the way it is. You stop asking questions. Mm -hmm. But if you if you if there is an answer, you can do that. So here's the inquiry piece: is that um, I th there's two kinds of inquiry. I think that we we do in such a word inquiry, and I think in teaching in general, there's teacher-led inquiry and there's inquiry-led teaching. Teacher-led inquiry is what I did for most of my career and what most people do, and I think, and I still do it all the time, and it's really important. That's where I already, kind of, I know the answer of what I'm teaching, and I'm going through a process for the kids to inquire to know what I already know. You see what I mean? So I used to teach science. I love teaching science and I would do Newton's laws and we would do all these experiments to figure out the three Newton's laws. I knew what the laws were before we did it. And we aren't going to find a new law of physics, right? But it's a game. I'm, I didn't actually, I didn't actually do science. I, I taught about science, 
right? But what happens when you get into orthography, precisely because there's so much misunderstanding in the world, what we get to do so much more of is what is really the goal. We do the teacher-led inquiry to learn the mechanics of doing scientific inquiry, how you raise a hypothesis, test it, how all these kinds of things. And we do specific things in, in there's specific tools with the word sum in the matrix and graphing phoning diagrams and such that we use and etymology that we use in SWI. But then the best thing is when a kid asks a question to which you don't know the answer. And then my response to that is, awesome, I have no idea. Let's check it out. And now we use the same processes that we were practicing when I knew the answer and apply it to a word I didn't know the answer to. For example, I, I often tell this story, I, I don't know, it was a while ago now, I was trying to write the word exorbitant in an email. And I'm still not a good speller if I don't understand. If I don't understand a spelling, I still make the same kinds of mistakes I did as a kid. So I wrote E-X-H-O-R-B-I-D and I didn't, and it was such an off spelling that my spell checker didn't even find it. So I go to the dictionary and when you look and check out the word, and I got close enough to get to the word exorbitant. And ch and instantly when I saw that spelling, uh, let me just bring it wherever we are. Um, so E-X, and I finally got rid of the H. And as soon as I saw that spelling, I knew I'd never wonder about how to spell exorbitant again. Look at that spelling. Compared to what I was trying to write, let me just get a page again. Ah, sorry. This okay. is the bits, the bits you can cut out. So, can you spell that for me, Nate? E-X-O-R-B-I-T-A-N-T. Did you notice the suffix you spelled at the end? Uh, is it ant? A-N-T. Yeah. Can you spell that? Exorbit. And this is the thing, because I didn't have an orthographic memory that knew how to spell exorbitant, I spelled, when you say exorbitant. Exorbitant. I spelled it according to what I was taught about sounds at the beginning. I don't know if I did A-N-T or E-N-T, but I put a D there. Oh no, sorry, a D, a D there. And I put an H there, like exhibit in other words have that H there. I can't have an H in exorbitant because it really means out of this orbit. The price is so much it's out of this orbit. Actually, the IT is a suffix and orb is the real base. But the point is, once I see orbit, I have a meaning connection to the grapheme phoneme correspondence. And graphemes and phonemes are abstract. If you are trying to teach kids, you know this with math, if you're teaching kids in math, I bet you, you've never had the thought of introducing um, addition to kids with the number sentence. You start with counters. You, you put two cookies here and three cookies there, and you put a plus sign between them. You say, well, if I have two cookies and I add three more cookies, I have one, two, one, two, three. Let's put them over here. One, two, three, four, five. Ah, so that equals five. So you have this concrete representation of the abstract concept of that little squiggle that stands in for three, the squiggle that stands in for two, and the squiggle that stands in for five. You don't start with the squiggles. 
You start with the concept and then you can take the abstract squiggles and say, oh, that is for the number two. That means one, two. That's for the number three, one, two, three. And when you put them all together, you get five. You get to the abstract thing by a concrete thing. And so I couldn't spell exorbitant as somebody who's been doing this all my life. I never thought about the word before and I wasn't getting there by sound. I, I needed to see the actual spelling and then in a flash, I understand because now I link meaning to the phonology, which is what I'm doing with kids in kindergarten in grade one. But I still need to do it myself now. So, you know, something that comes up, it comes to mind with me. And I, I was going to kind of beat around the bush with this, but I think I, I'm going to give you the opportunity just to address it head on because I think some listeners might have the same idea. And it comes to mind, you know, Dylan William, when I interviewed him, told me that he he sort of implied that he no longer felt like any individual teaching practice was important. What he felt was important was the individual teacher. Um, and you come across as this very passionate teacher, this very incredibly knowledgeable teacher. I'm sure anyone listening to this is blown away by your level of knowledge of orthography. Um, but in the, my, my concern is how is that, you know, how does the average teacher get this level of expertise that you have? Um, well, I, I, I found your, I find some of this almost overwhelming when you're first learning about it. Well, we're, we're cramming in, you know, months of work into a little hour session, right? Yeah. So it's not appropriate instructional time that I'm giving you, but you got a video, you can pause and look at it again and all that. But the, the point that I would make there is my first year of teaching with real spelling when I knew nothing was in many ways, the richest teaching I ever did in this precisely because I was learning on the go with the kids. They would ask questions. They saw that I did. I honestly did not know the answer to most of the questions. And then I would learn it with them. You know, so it, yes, it's, I can do things now that I couldn't do then. But there are, I think, honest ways in which I can never be, I can't pretend to not know things, right? So when kids discover things and they see the teachers learning with them, that's a different kind of inquiry. And that's the inquiry-led teaching, right? So we, we teach how to do inquiry, the mechanics of the scientific inquiry process so that we can actually move to doing science, not to see if you can figure out the game that the teacher already knew, but for the teacher and the kids to find something they didn't know before they started. And that is actually doing science. It's not teaching about science. Now, don't let me act like there's anything wrong with the, the teacher-led inquiry. It's crucial. We got to teach the mechanics of this stuff. And I guide my instruction through it and I do it all the time. But I'm really excited when people ask me questions I don't know the answer to, because then we get to Ooh, now we get to do some science because I don't know the answer. Let's check it out. But you only do that because you know that there's a place to go. The other, but the, you'd raise a key point here, and it is absolutely, it's the most fair criticism I know of structural word inquiry is the demands on teacher knowledge. Absolutely. But here's the thing. If I taught one course in a teacher college, I would have so many more hours of teaching orthography than I'd get to do in my five-day courses. And those five-day courses often get are enough to get people going. The issue isn't that it's that hard. I teach stuff to grade twos that teachers don't know, and grade ones. It's not that it's not too hard. It's just that we are building on the other thing. And this is where the cognitive load theory comes in again. I'll, I'll point to some stuff on this. But the thing about cognitive load theory, one one of the many crucial things about it is, unlearning is harder than learning. Once you've developed 
a mental representation of schema for how things work. If that mental representation of schema is wrong, you have to undo it. So we have to, I work so much harder to undo things like the Z sound and the SH sound and the T sound because it's been planted in someone by the, by the world. And what if we just taught in such a way that you never had to unteach that? What if no, but there's no reason for any kid to ever grow up thinking English spelling is crazy if we just taught how it worked from the beginning? There, yes, there's, so there's a big challenge to get enough teachers to understand how to do this. And yeah, that's a challenge. Um, fortunately, there's a pile of people doing this work now that people can study with. And a teacher works with this for this year. Well, next year, they know more than the year before. And because we're using scientific inquiry as the basis of the teaching work, the teacher's learning grows and they get better at doing it. So whereas I don't find that people's understanding of orthography keeps developing every year that they teach when they're teaching from the traditional ways. When you're teaching from a traditional way, you're taking what's on the page and what you know, and you try to have the kids know what you know, as opposed to investigating and, and trying to find out more every year. So I take it, there, it, it is not an easy thing to just do it, but there are enough tools to get going and over time, you, teachers can learn how to do this. But I don't expect it. I, I, you couldn't go to a school board and say, next year, we're going to implement structured word inquiry and everybody's going to do it. No, you, you would have to do pilot programs and teach certain people and get people understanding and they can teach other people. And that's how it's growing around the world. There's crazy pockets of structured word inquiry in Melbourne and in Switzerland and in Bangkok and in Edmonton and in California and in Chicago and other places because groups of people where this has started just keeps going and going. And once once you understand this stuff, you can't go back. You can't go back to teaching does is irregular once you understand it. So right, I don't that's, know re that's really fascinating. And I, I, I have noticed that you have quite the the prolific um, follower base of people who are very interested. I it was, was really and, and curious. I want to emphasize, it's not just me. There's lots of people doing great work doing PD in this work. And that makes my job easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I noticed I uh, when I, I did I did a session with you uh, for the listeners awareness, and, and one of the things I found was interesting was actually just listening to the people in your class. I found that just as interesting as listening to your lecture. I was really tempted to ask them questions when you did the breakout yeah. groups. Yeah. I resisted because I thought it would be inappropriate, but I was really curious. Um, so, how many? How long does it you do you think it takes to get a teacher to become proficient in this teaching style? I mean, it's just, just different for everybody. But but the, the point is, if you start pointing people at structures, the morphemes and the graphemes and how they interrelate and and take a bunch of these high frequency words people think are irregular and you start explaining them, if you just do it at a basic level, what we find is there's a lot of interest. I, I, I had a great story one time. I did a workshop in, in San Francisco and this teacher came who was from a grade one teacher and she was like giddy with excitement. It was very cool. Her very first time ever do, seeing this stuff and she was super excited. And I come back the next year <laughs> and I, we're going around saying, you know, what, do you, what, what brought you here and all that. And she and I recognize her from the year before and she says, well, I came here last year and I was so excited. I just thought this was the best thing. And then I went back to my class and I taught it. I was teaching for a year, but I, I felt like I didn't understand anything. And so I was determined to come back and, and get it again. And so I just asked her, I said, so what did your kids think? Did your kids get interested? And she went on about how much her kids loved it. 
And I said, well, it sounds to me like you're doing just fine. Like the kids, they're asking questions about words and word sums and graphemes and phonemes and morphemes. And they're, they're doing all this stuff. She, her, her personal experience was, I don't really know the answers. I don't feel very confident in this. I need more help, which is a legitimate thing to think. But she had to stop and realize if your kids were more excited about your reading instruction than your previous years, it doesn't matter if you were proficient yet or not. You obviously gave the kids something you didn't give them before. And so one argument I make, and I'm glad you made me think of this, is that when I, and you may have, I don't know if you were in the first session, but I try to be very clear. I don't want anybody to drop anything they're currently doing that they think works because they come to an hour workshop or one workshop. The point is that if I've shown you something that makes sense of spellings that you previously didn't understand, that's enough evidence to me that you should share that with your kids. If you can now explain something you couldn't explain before, go for it. But don't worry about what you should stop doing. Let yourself get some time understanding how this works. And over time, you can decide what of your previous practices you think you should drop. But don't drop it because somebody tells you to drop it, right? I don't, I don't want you to replace something you feel good with with something you don't understand yet. Just try something new. And as you gain your understanding, you can, you can move forward. And you make your own decisions of what you drop. You can ask me what I do. And if I say, well, I don't do that, that doesn't mean you can't. It just means I don't. And you can decide what you want to do. But so, yeah, the, 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 the load on, and this is a, a serious issue with the research because in order to train trainers to do the intervention is a challenge, you know, the, and, and so that makes it a challenge. But, you know, when I work with teachers who've been work, working with this for a year or two or three, that what they can do is, is awesome. That's, that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, hmm. Sorry, I'm losing my, my train of thought here. If for the audience, uh, I'm a little slightly sick here. So if I'm not making the most sense today, that's why. Um, I guess, okay, I remember what I was trying what I wanted to follow up with. So I often like to think of things in terms of efficiency as a teacher. Like what is what is the mo what is the easiest way we can improve teachers' uh, teaching ability, right? What is the least work a teacher can do to get the most results? Um, well, so I mean, I, I started from a different premise. My premise is, the structure wording the, the premise of structure word inquiry is simply instruction should accurately reflect whatever the content of instruction is <laughs> that shouldn't be a radical statement so if we have evidence that actually we're teaching things right now that misrepresents the writing system that's a good place to start start finding if you say if you think does is irregular but now you understand that it isn't irregular that's a good thing to do and but the point isn't the spelling of the word does the point of understanding the spelling of does is that, oh, this concept of morphemic consistency, the idea that English spelling has evolved to favor consistent spelling of the meaning units, morphemes, over consistent spelling of the spoken units, phonemes. And once you have that frame, you can use the understanding of the spelling of do and does to help you with act and action, to help you with sign and signal, to help you with heal and health and please and pleasure, because that is everywhere in the writing system. That we, that the, the, and there are certainly, and then there's places where the spell, the pronunciation shift is so far that you can't keep the spelling the same. And that's, then we learn something else. But the point is that what we can do is say, let's not be in a hurry. The, it's not about the efficiency of what happens tomorrow. It's, you know, it's not going to hurt to have the, the most basic thing that we do first is word families. 
find words that are related in structure and meaning, you can do that with any word that you're studying. You know, you take the word play and playful and replay, but then you put a word like jump and run, and those aren't related. And then you can find other words that seem like that might have some of the same spelling, but not be related. So you can start this with a very basic amount of it, with just the basic ideas that there are word, every word is a base or a base of something fixed to it. And the words that when you add prefix and suffixes, you make words that are related. And that's not the end. That's the window to understanding graphing phoneme correspondences and etymology and all of that. Um, oh, sorry. I guess like that sort of it answers the question. I was going to ask, um, why not then just teach um, the irregular words through this system instead of, you know, the because the under because the target is never the word you're teaching. The target is systemic understanding. Right. Like what I said with the vocabulary intervention, the point wasn't to, to that the that kids were better at defining words like significant than they were if they didn't get the matrix I gave them. The point is I didn't give them the word significant, but I taught words related to it. What I want you to be able to do is use this, what I teach you to be generative for other learning. And so I can you it's really useful to pick words that are typically taught as irregular because if we can now explain them, that means we have to have learned something about the system. Right? Like the words one and one. How do you know which is which? Right? I could so picking picking um, irregular words that are called irregular is rich because if you call them irregular, it's evidence that we don't understand them yet. And if you can learn something about that, you're learning about the system. Well, guess what? Homophones typically aren't spelled the same. There's a homophone principle. So we can take the one and one thing and realize, oh, that's, it shouldn't be, I should expect them to be spelled differently. And if you look at the one I won the race, it's not surprising. It's related to the word win with the W-I-N and the W-O-N, whereas the O-N-E of one thing is related to words like loan and alone, which is about one thing. So you can draw connections between meanings and now what were irregular before has order. And I promise you there's never been a kid who's who's been motivated and interested because they just got set a whole bunch of other words that are irregular they have to memorize. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's ever motivated anybody. I always say nothing motivates like understanding. It's it's understanding an ooh I can understand the word does that's why I was grabbed by that first session because I didn't understand spelling and this guy was making sense of it. It's the struggling kids that are the most excited about this, and that's the other piece Nate to your earlier question is this is the funny thing. It looks hard to teachers. The funny thing it's easier for kids because the kids have less to unlearn. And so our, our perception of what's going to be too hard, our perception, oh my God, the words morpheme and phoneme and grapheme, that's way too much. We should use the word sounds. Well, that's an assumption, but it's not tested. I was working at, a, I went to a school, a kindergarten class in Chicago at a public school that's doing great stuff with this. I went in to talk about homophones. They'd already been doing this work. I can't remember if it was kindergarten or grade one. And so we talk about homophones. So what's, wait a second, homophones, if hum is for same, what's the phone part for? And what I'm usually going for is like telephone. I can talk on my telephone and you can hear me over there. It's like a telescope, teles for away. Scope is for see, telephone we can hear. But that's not what he said. With the kid, this little boy raises his hand and goes, phoneme? 
Jesus. Because his his teacher uses the words phoneme and grapheme all the time because they're doing a structured word inquiry. So he already knew phoneme. And when I introduced the new word, he didn't know homophone. He could go from the word phoneme to the word homophone and get it. Wow. So it, it, we have this perception that it's too hard, but we don't have a worry about teaching kindergartens about the word relationship and responsibility because we're used to teaching those words. But when we feel new to words like phoneme and grapheme and morpheme, our, the newness to us makes us nervous. And so we, we put that onto the kids. We think if it's hard for me, it's going to be hard for them. The newness of something to me has nothing to do with the newness to the kid. We don't have that fear when we talk, when we introduce the kid to the word relationship. Oh, but they don't know that yet. I can't teach them. Well, I, you sort of uh, hit off another question I was going to ask you about in advance. Um, I was going to ask about the idea, of, if, do you think this is too hard for the students? But I think you've sort of already addressed that. And I, I will say, I have, I have found in, in general in teaching, um, we sort of baby students too much in the sense of how much we cover with them. I think when we challenge students, I find I've always found they do better. And I, I also, I really liked your statement about how understanding um, is motivating. I found that in math that of course. Um, when students understand the math, these students that are so-called disengaged often become engaged. Well, the better. definition of depression is learned helplessness. If you, if you've, if you've, if you've learned to be helpless, why would you try, right? And so the only and the only cure to learned helplessness is learned helpfulness. And so if you give an understanding, you motivate. But perhaps we should talk about the research because I've gone on that so was, long. That was actually going to be my very next question. Look so. at that. We're on, the, we're on the same page. All right. So, um, and we'll, we'll walk through this. And I, I'm pleased that we get a bit into your wheelhouse of meta-analyses. I think it's wild that you're your focus on meta-analyses. Um, but so just kind of a, an overall frame here. Again, I'll, I'll try to make sure that this works for the listeners as, as not just the viewers. But I think we can say that a basic uh, assumption of literacy instruction is that learners deserve instruction that represents how <clears throat> the writing system works. Well, I, actually, this is a quote from a famous massive uh, review from 2001. Um, Rainer, Foreman, Perfetti, Pest, I don't want to say that name in Seidenberg. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, I don't know how to say it either. Um, they argue learning how to use the conventional forms of printed language to obtain meaning from words. Of course, conventional forms mean orthographic conventions. It logically follows that the child learning how to read needs to learn how his or her writing system work. I agree entirely. The thing that was interesting and, and you know, challenged me as, a, as a, a grad student in 2003, just starting my master's, was that wait a second, when I read the article, they don't say anything about teaching morphology. This was an argument for the arguing support. This is why the evidence is, is that phonics is more effective than not teaching phonics because it gives a kid something about understanding how the writing system works. I agree entirely, but why would we avoid other aspects that drive the writing system is my question. And, and, and this paper actually really does a great job of explaining what morphophonology is. They just don't make any reference to the idea about teaching morphology. So we have this idea that English is morphophonemic. Here's a, a quote from Venetsky again. The simple fact is that the present orthography is not merely a letter to sound system riddled with imperfections, but instead a more complex and more regular relationship wherein phoneme and uh, morpheme share leading roles. And if you look at the date there, this is 1967. This is not new information. It's not controversial. I've never heard anybody argue with this. So the question is, 
if we're trying to teach how the writing system works, how can we just ignore that morphology piece? Now, of course, there's a lot more morphology taught now, but it's the sharing that is, is the thing. So now I want to talk about what does the research say about morphological instruction? And as we cued at the beginning of the first video, structured word inquiry is not morphological instruction. It's orthographic instruction, but any SWI intervention would make would fit in a morphological intervention because it teaches morphology explicitly so that that's a part of the study. So what we're looking at now is going to be not about structured word inquiry, but about morphological instruction that is a part of SWI. Does that make sense? I always struggle with that. No, it makes total sense. I'm following. Okay. One other thing I want to highlight is in this is, um, oh, I put this in the wrong place, but that's right. Just before we get there, um, this reading triangle is super well known. The idea that if we're trying to teach kids to learn to read and write, we're trying to teach them the links between the spellings on the page, the orthography, the pronunciation of words, and the semantics. Well, it turns out that my John Kirby and I put forward a hypothesis. There's only one part of the language system that actually is implicated in all three corners of the triangle. Morphemes have spellings, they have pronunciations, and they have meaning. And this ties into other research with Perfetti and such about that I won't get into at the moment. But the but the point being, there's a there's reason to believe that if we teach about the spellings and pronunciations and meaning of the word in the context of morphology, that we can make better sense of all of that. And I don't know any other part of the language system that does that. Syllables don't go there because syllables don't represent meaning. So that's that's this idea. Um, I'll move on instead of talking about that one. So let's let's get back to the the the, the research kind of story. So the historical context that I wanted to raise is that we know about this reading wars. There's been always this fight between phonics and whole language. And one thing I would argue is structured word inquiry isn't a response to phonics. It's not a response to the idea that instruction to reflect how the writing system works. So it's not based on either of these. The thing is, I just don't accept these as the two goalposts and that there's nothing else. Now, the common argument is that the research shows that phonics is more effective than whole language. As you know, my brother Jeff has, has addressed some of this research, and I'll pass on the links to this to the listeners, that I think he's got a really good argument that we have been really mis... The, the research is making claims beyond what the evidence shows. But for now, let's not even deal with that. Let's just accept this argument for the second. If that were the case, what does the evidence... What does that tell us about the effect of morphological instruction? And the answer is it tells us nothing because you have it included in morphology in what you've been comparing, right? Evidence that A is greater than B doesn't tell me anything about C. It doesn't tell me C is good. It doesn't tell me C is bad. It tells me nothing about C. So the evidence comparing whole language and phonics doesn't actually speak to morphology. However, there's been a kind of an assumption in the research for, for decades I often use this quote from Marilyn Adams' book, 1990 book, Beginning to Read, which is a major seminal piece. Um, and in it, she, this isn't her main point of her book, but she makes this point, although teaching older readers about the roots, by which she means base morphemes, and suffixes of morphological, morphological, teaching beginning or less skilled readers about them may be a mistake. Well, 
that's a hypothesis. She didn't claim to have evidence, she, that, but she just put that out as a hypothesis. The problem is, a decade later, the National Reading Panel comes out. It doesn't mention morphological instruction at all. It is behaving as if this is an empirically based discovery, but it hasn't been tested. So we, they don't mention anything about um, morphological instruction. They do say something very valuable. They point out that they can't make any recommendations about vocabulary instruction because there haven't been enough vocabulary interventions upon which to make a research-based recommendation. And that knocked me out when I read that in 2003. And I said, what have you been doing? You, have, you haven't got enough interventions in vocabulary? That seems crazy. Well, guess what happened? After making that statement in this major thing, the interest in vocabulary instruction shoots up in the research. If you're a grad student and the National Reading Panel just said there's not enough vocabulary instructions and you're in literacy, that's a pretty that's good fine. thing. That's a good place to put your research project because it's going to be needed, right? And I will say, I bet you that one of the reasons that morphology interest grew after this is because the link between vocabulary and morphology was the most obvious context. So in the, in the motivation to do more vocabulary instruction, morphology started to get more traction. But they made no comment about morphology in that. And then I pointed to this other article. So we've gone a decade and the, the air that researchers are breathing and just assuming is that, well, morphology, that might be interesting, but that's for the later years without testing it. So now here we have by 2008, uh, you know, almost a decade after that first, that the National Reading Panel, we have our very first review, just seven studies, but then by 2010, our meta-analyses and there's others and another review. And what we find in the, in all the meta-analyses that all of everybody who looked at overall groups, they, everybody benefited. Now, this study by Gudrun and 2010 was on less able kids, so they can't say anything about overall kids. Reading this but, paper today, actually. Sorry? I was reading this paper today. Oh, there you go. And uh, here, we compared the, the effects of preschool to grade two kids to grade three to grade eight. And what we found is actually, in every case, the effects were at least equal to um, the, the other studies and usually greater. So actually, and other people noticed that too, that the youngest got benefits from the morphological instruction. And when we looked at the less able, it was even clearer. In every case in our study, the less able gained more than, the, than, the, than those identified for difficulties gained more from the morphological instruction compared to the others. This surprised people, and it should surprise people, because the, the driving hypothesis was that you should avoid those groups. That the less able and the younger, you should do the phonology first. You shouldn't do the morphology yet. And yet the evidence is pointing in the opposite direction. So I would think that that would be, this should be an exciting discovery because guess what? Whoa, we thought this was going to hurt, but it might help. Let's take a look at this and we should see how this goes. But it somehow it hasn't really penetrated in the way it should. If we just follow the evidence of the meta-analyses, the evidence is we should be teaching morphology from the beginning of this instruction and especially for less able kids. What we do not know is we don't have evidence of what kind of morphology instruction is better than another. We, you'd have to have studies that compared approaches, which we don't have. So I can't say that structured word inquiry is a better way to teach morphology in another way scientifically, but it's on the table that I'm asking researchers to take a look at. And guess what? It, we're not just teaching morphology, we're actually using it to teach phonology. 
Now, there is another study um, that came after that, 2013, that was really, it doesn't, they didn't call it a SWI intervention, but it did exactly what Structured Word Inquiry does. The funny thing is, I got to tell you, Nate, when I read the first um, abstract of her first paper, she in her abstract, she had written, English spelling is an interrelationship of morphology, etymology, and phonology. And when you do the meta-analysis, you got to read every morphological intervention there is. And then it was like, oh my God, I, nobody is saying this. I bet you she studied with real spelling. I emailed her. Yep. As a teacher, she worked with real spelling. And so that tells you something, right? If I can tell from the abstract of that statement that somebody worked with real spelling, that tells you something. And in the paper, she did say that she used word sums, but she didn't mention the matrix. But when I emailed her, yes, they used the matrix. 120 kids in public schools in the UK, and they found that the SWI type intervention significantly improved literacy skills in word reading and spelling in standardized measures compared to the phonics condition. Now, I got, I'm going to hasten to mention this paper often gets criticized because of they are, the argument is that their phonics condition wasn't a true phonics condition. And this is an argument that I want to share whenever I do this. This is the text describing the, intervent, the inter, intervention instruction. I won't ask you to read it now, but it's something that if you're watching the video, you can freeze. What I want to point out here is it, it's at the bottom of this paragraph that describes the other thing they did. Everything up here is absolutely typical phonics instruction, but they did also have a practice where the kids took a book home and read it in a more word recognition way. Like a, They did a word reading kind of thing, a whole word thing at home. So the criticism of this paper is we, this isn't really a phonics intervention because they used a whole word scheme. Well, I would caution people to realize the whole word scheme was something kids, five to seven-year-olds, did on their, on their own at home. So the idea of rejecting this paper when all of the in-class intervention study was phonics, I find that I, you can raise questions about it, but to dismiss this paper, I think, is unjustified. I don't think that's a fair criticism. It's it's common, and it really does. It really mean, and because people say that about that paper, other people just don't even read the paper, right? So it's a it's an issue. So this is part of your earlier question. What are some common criticisms and challenges about both structured word acquiring and morphological instruction? Uh, it could be useful as long as it doesn't take away time from phonics instruction. It's too complicated for young kids. They have to get the start on the letter sound correspondences. There's so much evidence we need that first. But remember, you can't draw that conclusion if you haven't compared to teaching, teaching, including morphology first. Struggling kids need the phonology first. These are all empirical claims, and they're all the same claims that, that Adams made in 1990. But here we have evidence since 2010 that actually counters those hypotheses. And so we still now, here's a, a quote from Russell and Taylor 2018, where they argue, we believe that a focus on these morphological regularities is likely to be more appropriate in later years of primary schooling. Well, you can, you can believe that, but you shouldn't make that statement without re referencing the fact that this is in contrast to what the meta-analyses are saying. You can say we disagree with the meta-analyses for these reasons. I'm not saying you shouldn't raise this hypothesis, but you shouldn't do it without referencing the fact that it's actually countering the best evidence we have now. And another one, um, Castles, Russell, and Nation 2018, we would predict that the benefits of explicit morphological instruction are more likely to be observed somewhat later. Again, 
You can make that prediction, but it's a bit odd to do so without referencing the fact that, in fact, although we don't have enough, we don't have enough research of morphology with young kids. This is not, you know, concrete findings. But to ignore that all of the findings are in the opposite direction is a problem. And I would argue support for the hypothesis of phonology before you introduce any morphology would need evidence, if you're going to say it's a research-based claim, that including morphology from the start results in lower gains compared to isolated phonics. And I've yet to see anybody find that. I've never found a paper that in taught morphology where anybody was harmed by the inclusion of morphology. But there's other, other facts that are very useful to see here. So Goodwin and Ann, in their two meta-analyses, they did better stats than we did in ours because they had effect sizes in the, in the way that we didn't. And what they did is they looked at the phonological outcome. Uh, sorry, they looked at the outcomes in multiple um, aspects of reading. And guess what they found? I was really surprised by these results. The outcomes with the greatest effect were from including morphology were phonological. So phonological awareness had, you know, 0 0.48, 0 0.49 in their studies and phonological recording, recoding for the less able had 0.54. Decoding for the, the general was 0.59. The only, the only outcome that had a lower effect size than the morphological outcomes was decoding for the less able. But even that was positive. So the argument that that we have this danger, if we do morphology, we're going to hurt phonology, is not being supported by this. What we're finding is that when we teach morphology, it actually brings benefits to the phonology. And people are surprised by this, but actually it makes perfect sense when you understand this is an interrelationship. And I also want to highlight in the meta-analyses that, that we did, we looked at 22 studies in our meta-analyses, and I think the number, I think there was five studies out of 22 that even mentioned, even a little bit, the relationship between morphology and phonology. So they didn't teach that explicitly, and yet we still get those gains in phonology, right? And so if imagine what these results would look like for phonology if we taught explicitly. And so the way that, Gudrun Ann responded to that just because I wouldn't do this if you didn't have an audio only group, but I'll read the, the quote. So Gudrun Ann write, similar to Bowers et al. 2010, results suggest that early morphological instruction may be particularly helpful, perhaps because of the synergistic relationship between phonology and morphology. And the larger repertoire of root, base, and affix meanings available for use if a reciprocal relation exists between morphological knowledge and literacy, it makes sense to jumpstart that knowledge from an early age. So we're seeing that there's reasons to believe that teaching morphology should help phonology. And here's another key point. Though dyslexic kids, a typical characteristic that we talk about is phonemic awareness deficit. Well, guess what? If we take kids at school, we measure them on phonemic awareness tasks, and, and some kids are not as good at saying cat without the k, or identifying the, the uh, manipulating phonemes and such. And then we teach them for three years, and then we measure them on the reading later. It shouldn't surprise us when basically all the leverage for their learning was put on the one thing they have a deficit in. What if we teach morphology D dyslexics don't have a deficit in morphological awareness. They don't have a deficit in 
meaning structure and seeing patterns and inquiring so we can give them leverage for something they're strong at to help them with the thing that they're weak at. And in fact, I would say that we already see without even doing that, that we're getting phonological games. And it makes sense to me that that one thing those with phonological weaknesses have is dealing with, with graphing phonic correspondences without that comparison. Now, there's another recent study from 2020, which is the next meta. I, I'm not cherry picking meta analyses. These are the only meta analyses that I know of. And the next one after 2013 was 2020. And they were looking at the effects um, of morphology in spelling instruction for kids that were struggling. And what they found here, we did not find that phonics instruction is more effective than morphological interventions in the early years of formal literacy instruction or for more severe spelling deficits. According to our meta regression analysis, it seems likely that phonics, morphological and orthographic interventions are applicable across a wide age span. Notice that I always get a kick out of this. They point out that they're qualitative synthesis, thinks, makes them think that it should be done later. I never see meta-analyses point to the qualitative things that differ from the data. But this qualitative view fits with what they were thinking. So they mention it, but good on them. They say, however, the meta-analyses that we just looked through show that that's not true. So good on them. They went with the data, right? But it, I just find that fascinating. We just have this way of looking at the world. Even more um, significant is this one. So I have to add to what's here just because of the context. But what here what they say is against our hypotheses, the effect, the efficacy of phonics interventions decreased with increasing severity of the kids spelling deficits, right? So I'm just giving you that context. So the more deficits the kids had in spelling, the less effective the phonics interventions were. Whereas the efficacy of orthographic and morphological interventions increased with the increasing severity. Now, I'm willing to bet that very few researchers or teachers who follow the researchers or educators that follow the researchers would expect this finding. See, I, I actually, that this was a last, this is a last surprising outcome to me in the sense that when I, I was looking at the Goodwin 2010 um, meta-analysis earlier today, and I was really surprised that um, the, the phonological outcomes were higher than the um, spelling ones. Because when I was listening to your talk on it, what you're saying, a lot of this type of instruction makes a lot of sense for spelling specifically to me and yeah. uh, for vocabulary as well. Yeah. But um, it makes, I don't, I don't personally see it as, as uh, easily applicable to reading or decoding. What, I mean, you highlighted how the decoding yeah. outcome was the one that phonics outperformed in, but uh I mean, I, I take your point there, Nate. It, it does, it, it is a little bit more, it's less surprising perhaps to see that with the spelling, but that's, you know, good on you for seeing that. But I'm saying people who are living in the reading research world, who are in the spelling research world, the literacy research world, this is not the expected finding. And the authors themselves were surprised by it. Now, I hasten to add, there was a note there that I didn't yet get to, which is, this is based on a small number of morphological studies, so we can't, this isn't conclusive. Well, guess one reason why there's not that many morphological interventions with young kids, because we've been telling people not to do it for decades. Mm -hmm. Right? So the, our point with the structured word inquiry is not that we have evidence that it's super strong. We keep saying we don't have enough evidence. What we have is evidence that there's reason to test it. 
And it, it goes along with what we know about morphological instruction. We have no reason from the data to fear it's going to hurt the phonology. In fact, we have reason to believe it could help. And it helps the less able and the younger more so far. Let's get more evidence for that. But that seems to be the way. So it's just, it. but this is not the air that people have been breathing for decades is that you got to do the phonology first. And, and morphology is kind of this extra thing that you might do. Now that's growing more. There's a lot more interest in morphology than used to be. But... And, and the other thing I want to highlight is we keep talking about this and the issue keeps being about the early instruction. And that is, I think, is particularly important and for the less able. But if people are concerned that they don't buy that yet, they still think you have to do the phonology first, go for it. But what I'm confused by is how come people who have that issue with the early instruction aren't paying attention to why aren't you looking at this for grade three and up? Why The matrix that I, I use all the time, I explain in the paper you're talking about, the first time the paper, the, the matrix appears in a research context is in, I think it's 2003 with Marsha Henry, who cites the real spelling use of the matrix. The next paper that uses the matrix is my 2010 paper. I've pointed to the matrix in the word sum in every paper I've ever done that mentions structured word inquiry. I've yet to, there's now in 2020 is the first paper I've seen that doesn't have me in it that shows a matrix. It's like, I don't understand why this isn't being picked up on. And if you fear that it's not appropriate for the younger grades, okay, why don't we look at it with the older grades? And I point in that latest article to research by Rassel and stuff showing great ideas that I totally agree with with, with teaching older kids, but, but why not reference this, this work? So there's something, so I just want to highlight, yes, I think it's super important for the younger kids and the less able. Don't have strong research evidence for it yet. Have very in, have very suggestive research because what, so far what we know about teaching morphology says helps the younger and less able the most. Um, and I think there's actually just a logical reason for it in terms of understanding how something works. And when we get into, as Jeff always points out, in psychology, we know learning is better when it's meaningful and when it's organized in a, in a meaningful way. And that's what we're doing when we work with the matrix and the word sum. So there's all sorts of theoretical and logical reasons to expect this to work, but we need to test it. Yes. Right. But we have no evidence that it. we have nothing that's showing us reasons why we should expect there to be harm from this. So, and the only other thing that I wanted to show in terms of the research, I won't read it because it's too long, but those of you who are watching, if you want to freeze this page, there's a, a long section um, from a, a morphology, a review of the effect of morphology on reading aloud. And they just speak so directly to the concepts that we've been talking about that I just wanted to, to put that there. We won't bother reading it now. If you're watching the video, you can freeze it and have a read of it. But it's just highlighting exactly the concepts that we've been pointing to. And the last little slide is to highlight everything we've been talking about is into the writing system itself is interrelated. We haven't talked about these four questions of structured word inquiry, but these are the questions we use to guide teachers. And you don't use them like a recipe every single time. But it helps us make sure we think about the meaning of words, how they're built, their relatives, and how the grapheme phoneme correspondences operate in that system, which is why we can explain the spelling of action. This also talks about the interrelationship. The reading system is interrelated. And then we talk about morphology as a binding agent in our paper with John, my paper with John Kirby. Um, and that this builds on Perfetti's lexical quality hypothesis 
that I won't go into now, but if you're interested in that, you can read about that. And also, I would argue to cognitive load theory that I, I, you had some questions about. Um, I can pass people a, a link to some writing about that. People think they often challenge structured word inquiry because they think that it's got too much cognitive load. But I think that's a misunderstanding of cognitive load theory because what we understand, one thing we understand is yes, there's th we don't want to overload the working memory, absolutely, but cognitive load theory also says you have to make learning meaningful and you have and that you need practice and you need to understand these connections and i do all sorts of things around cognitive that that drive what i'm what i'm doing so that those to, it takes work in fact it takes extra cognitive load to shift your long-term memories so by by having this kind of the rote memory practice isn't very effective at that but understanding the meaning spelling connections and the pronunciations that is actually what cognitive load says we should do the multi-memory routes the writing out loud the spelling out loud these are all ways of building well integrated mental representation of schema of orthography in your head that you build up through practice such that when you're reading you can recognize those structures and that's where the tie that 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 comes to the reading is that by building up by building up your recognition of the actual structures when you're reading you have more efficient access to it and that's again perfetti lexical quality but i would tie it to cognitive load and what we're talking about with why this morphology has such a key role in understanding graphemes and phonemes and meanings of words and all that. Well, that was a, that was a really fascinating and interesting interview. Uh, well, one, hopefully, but we'll you, see. <laughs> you know what? Actually, uh, I, I, I forgot that again, my longest interview ever is technically with your brother, although that was <laughs> um, proud. I, I think you might've beat him. I'm not sure. It's, it's around the same time now. Um, but but Nate, I got to say something about that. I really appreciate that you're willing to do that because this is what I, I mentioned before we recording. I think that one of the challenges, yes, train, trying to explain something that is not in the way you've looked at the world is harder than just refining a version of something you've always done. Yeah. So when people try to ask me questions and they try, I, I can't answer on Twitter what I, how I teach young kids. I mean, it's just it's not possible. You know, I point to videos and such, and I'll point you guys to videos that you can watch this stuff and examples. Of, I'll make sure Nate gets links for that. But I to explain the, you have to explain the orthography so that you can even talk about the research. If you it, it, right, so it's a it's such a. I mean, when I did when we first got the meta analyses uh, the meta analysis out, I remember presenting a poster at a conference before the actual paper was out, and people would come up to my poster and they were shocked like you found that it was that morphology got as greatest benefit with the younger they couldn't imagine it so well how do you teach morphology to grade one kids and i just i was remember sitting at the poster talking to you know fancy researchers so well you you i can say well i sit with kids in, in the class we come back from recess. oh do you hey kids do you like to what were you do you like to play at recess oh yes yes so, so what were you what were you playing at recess and I, hey, wait a second, notice I added in, you can't say, what were you play at recess? That would sound funny. They know that that's not how they talk. Play, what did I fix at the end of play to make playing? Oh, ing, okay. Oh, what can I fix ing? Oh, playing, jumping, running, oh. So you can fix ings at the end of words to affect the, the way you use that word, okay. And, that, and then people would say, oh, that makes sense, and walk away. It's like, but if they haven't seen it, 
They just don't have any frame of reference. And it, a lot of people, I think, turn it off without looking. Um, and, and I point to some videos that you can see kindergartners doing this stuff and all that. You know, I, I, I will say, I think Twitter is a terrible medium. I really oh, hate Twitter. I, I, I went on it very it. briefly uh, after my interaction yeah. with your brother. And I was just like, well, I hate this. Yeah. Um, yeah. In part because you, I, I don't feel you can give any meaningful response on Twitter to anything. It's so brutal, yeah. I'm, yeah I, I don't I, know. Someone asked me a series of questions, and I'm just like, I, I can't respond to these questions in 140 characters. And, like, and I'm terrible at figuring out how you write multiple tweets in a row. I just, I'm, oh, I'm, a, I'm terrible. Brutal. But I, I will <laughs> say also, uh, as much as uh, I debated a little with your brother, I actually feel a little bit of a kinship towards both of you in that um, you're, you're a very contrarian. And I, the, the name of this podcast is Pedagogy Non Grata because we we felt like a lot of what was being taught as gospel within the education community as evidence-based wasn't actually evidence-based if you went and looked at the meta-analysis research. And that was my specific focus, just, hey, we're being told this is the best strategy. I go look at all the meta-analysis research and it looks terrible in the research, but there's still a thousand scholars out there saying every day, this is the best. Yeah. Um, I, I find that very confusing. And, you know, it's it's hard to get research is complicated. There's lots of things that can go wrong. And, and, and I, we should be we should be looking at it critically and we should be letting it affect our thinking. But we also should be bringing in logic and, and trying other things and, and 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 seeing and then testing ideas, you know. Um, but I do find that there is such a focus on one way of thinking that makes it very hard to see something else. And again, I go back to cognitive load. Once you look at the world in a certain way, it's very hard to look at it in a new way. Um, and people often take what I'm saying as a challenge to what they've been doing for so long. And I'm not, that's not my point, but, but yeah, okay. If it's it's let's let's have a conversation about what what we're saying, but what I keep on getting is but the research says something else, and then when I say please show me a, a paper where including morphology has caused any harm to anybody, that there's if this this claim that we should avoid it doesn't seem to need to have an empirical basis. Somehow you don't need evidence to say don't do something. You only need evidence to say do something. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure I agree with that. And by the way, I see, you know, I see the value of what happens in classrooms and with teachers doing this. That's anecdotal, so we need evidence. But what I'm finding is that the arguments aren't the arguments against me are as if I'm violating what the science shows, and I actually think I'm doing a good job of representing the science. People can argue with me about that, and I'm happy to have that argument. Um, but I I keep trying to get to the actual evidence, and that's Jeff's experience with his paper about the evidence from phonics, I, I don't see people actually saying, explaining what about his arguments are wrong. I, I think this is a, a problem with um, whatever reason with our, our field in that people fall really heavily into camps. And I, 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 I've made the mistake, I think at times of calling myself within a camp, but I think overall, I'd like to see myself as outside of a camp in the sense that I just wanna look for principles that make sense. I want to find the things that the factors and the principles that make sense rather than being like, oh, I'm a, I'm a disciple of this scholar. Everything yeah, they yeah, say I find yeah. true. I, I have yeah, no yeah. interest in that. I mean, good on you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously I'm biased. I think the way that I teach is the best way, um, you know, and 
you know, I remember when I was working with, with John Kirby, who's, I was very lucky, he a, was a, like a brilliant uh, supervisor for me to have. We did not look at a lot of things in the same way, but he was v impressed the hell out of me because he would engage in the argument with me. And, and you know, he doesn't look at everything the same way, but he was, he was willing to have his mind changed by evidence and argument. And I was willing to have my ideas changed by things he showed me. Um, but so he was surprised at the at the outcome of our meta analyses when it made sense to me. Um, but uh, that was a so valuable to have somebody who had a you know a way of looking at the world. But he was he would also describe himself as not in a camp. Now I'm obviously I'm in a camp in a way. But but you know I'm happy to be disproven if I can find somebody who gives me an argument to change my mind. And so you know whether it's a camp or not. But I 100% agree with you that the the evidence of an argument the one thing it does not matter is who said it it's, it's the it's the argument that is that that we need to look at and so anyways that's that's the kind of way i i, I, I would agree with that i just want to make one final note on that is that i've said this many times if you are not willing to change your mind based off evidence you cannot call yourself evidence-based yeah, um, or science <laughs> yeah, it's pretty simple but i think there's a lot of things people would tell you even within our field oh i hold this sacred I know this is science. This is yeah. evidence-based, and yeah. no research you could ever show me would ever change my mind. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I do focus. I do launch on these things with words like "does" and and "sign" and such because I have yet to see. You know, I see lots of research papers say that English spelling makes much more sense than people usually think. Of course, there are some irregularities, and if they mention an irregularity, they usually include "does." And my point is, if you know, and pick any of your favorite irregular words. If I can now explain does, and previously the way you were taught told you that it's irregular, that is evidence that the way you're taught has a flaw in it, right? It's not just about the word does. It's like, wait a second. If I thought does was irregular and I now understand it, what a scientist needs to do is say, well, whoa, that's interesting. What does that imply about the other things I've been doing? So that's why I focus on these things because, and sign and signal and all this stuff. Oh, and what we find by looking at does and sign and signal, all that is this foundational principle of the writing system, morphemic consistency, which I've never heard that phrase in all my nine years of teaching. I never knew that there was anything to think about. I remember get, having a teaching book before I ran into real spelling, and it said something about one of the strategies you can use to help your kids with their spelling is to link it to meaning. And I literally went to a friend of mine who was related to that the publication, and I what do you mean that you can use meaning? Like I had no idea that meaning could have anything to do with spelling. It seemed like an absurd statement, and now it's like central to me. So I, it's like whoa, look. But when it makes sense, you know, check it out. And if, but also be willing to say, hmm. If what I used to think tells me that's irregular and I now understand it, it's not that I can now change how I teach the word does that's important. What's important is that I realize there must be something wrong with the way I was looking at this before. And now you take your time and, and check it out. Huh. That's that's all really interesting. Actually, to be fair, I thought the, the does word was the one that interested me the most of all the words we examined, weirdly. But uh I, I want to give the audience a chance to find you. So where where can the audience find more about you or your website? So my website is uh, wordworkskingston.com. I, 
it's a silly name because word works was taken when I did it. So I put Kingston and now it's ironic that I actually do not that much word in Kingston and work all over the world instead. Uh, but it's about this idea of, and the book that I, I made is, is built on the lessons from my intervention and it's called Teaching How the Written Word Works, which is what I like to do. Um, but if you Google that, I'm sure you'll find the website. There's a YouTube page with lots of videos. If you, Word Works, you'll find it. But I'll send you, uh, Nate, a, a document with um, some links to things people can explore, including other people that do this work. And that way they can they can explore more on their own. Well, I, I hope people do uh, explore your, your work. And I actually really genuinely hope that you get to do some more research in this, this realm. And I'd oh, like yeah. to see some more uh, highly powered meta-analysis on this topic. But, All right. Uh, it's been great having you on. I really enjoyed the interview. And uh, thanks for the... Uh, Thanks well, thanks for, for being so patient with the time. <laughs>